So as you've heard, this morning we are finishing our summer sermon series. Say that seven times fast, summer sermon series. Can you believe it that it's over? The summer has just flown by. For nine weeks, we have focused our sermons on the fruit of the Spirit, those telltale signs that God is at work in our lives, as listed by the Apostle Paul in the fifth chapter of Galatians. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and today's fruit, self-control. Now, self-control, I wonder what you think of when you picture self-control. Maybe you think of the willpower that you need to stay away from those extra calories, or the willpower you need to keep your exercise regimen going, or maybe you picture the battle that happens within you when you have work to be done and you want to go have some fun. Which are you going to do? Or maybe you're thinking about blowing your top and trying not to, trying to have some self-control about that. Perhaps you're just thinking of staying out of trouble. It's true that Self-control obviously isn't a difficult thing to understand, right? You all understand it. These children understood it very, very well, even when Pastor Emily was mean and ate the candy in front of them. They had self-control. You see, it's not difficult to understand. It can be hard to enact, but not difficult to understand. But I wonder, I wonder if the Apostle Paul had something deeper and more profound in mind when he was talking about self-control as a telltale sign of the Holy Spirit. I mean, surely for Paul, there's more to self-control than losing a few pounds or maybe getting your work done or staying out of trouble, right? So this morning, I want to go back to Paul's letter to the churches of Galatia, to that fifth chapter. And there I want to discover what Paul meant by self-control as the work of the Holy Spirit. But before I do that, I want you to do me a favor. I want you to humor me, and I'm going to ask you to try to use your imagination. I want you to try to imagine that you are part of a group of people that have a common purpose and a common destiny. Now, that shouldn't be too hard, right? It could be a civic group. It could be an entire city or neighborhood, a nation. It could be a church or a large extended family. Whatever it is, imagine you're part of this group, and this group of people must work together to improve life, to secure a stable future. Now, imagine that while your purpose and your future is bound up with this group of people, within this group, Polarized factions exist. Can you imagine such a thing? Polarized factions. Factions that disagree with one another, that call each other names, that won't speak to each other. Factions that keep the group from accomplishing things or moving forward. Factions that bring out the worst in people when the situation is perilous and the situation needs the best. From people. Imagine that. My guess is you didn't have too much difficulty with that scenario, right? Because we live it. We experience it all and all the time. And with that in mind, now hear Paul's message 
to the disarrayed, warring, cantankerous churches of Galatia, who by all accounts were better prepared to bite and devour one another than to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let us pray. God, we don't always want to look closely at our lives. Quiet us now. Help us to hear these words of challenge, and may your spirit be at work. Amen. Here's Paul's words in the fifth chapter of Galatians. For freedom, he writes, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for self-indulgence, but through love become enslaved to one another. For the whole law is summed up in a single commandment. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. If, however, you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. Live by the Spirit, I say, and do not gratify the desires of the flesh. For what the flesh desires is opposed to the Spirit, and what the Spirit desires is opposed to the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to prevent you from doing what you want. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not subject to the law. Now, the works of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, anger, quarrels, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. I'm warning you, as I warned you before, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. By contrast, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against such things. And those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh and its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also be guided by the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Oh, there were problems in the churches of Galatia. Do you hear it? Disagreements, divisions, misunderstandings, mistrust. Specifically, there seems to have been some kind of concern with Jewish law. These were mostly Gentile Christians. Someone had come to teach them that faith in Christ wasn't enough to live a godly life. That as Gentiles, they now needed to become fully Torah observant, keeping all those commandments of Hebrew Scripture. And Paul says, no. No. We live by the Spirit, and the Spirit reigns in our baser, lesser selves. The Spirit transforms us, guides us, and directs us. We do not need the control of Torah any longer, says Paul. Live by the Spirit. It's a bold claim that Paul's making, isn't it? That when led by God's Spirit, immorality and discord will diminish in us, and our lives will begin to bear fruit or show signs of God's intention for our world and relationships, and love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, generosity, faithfulness, and gentleness, and self-control will begin to appear. Friends, this self-control is so much more than willpower. This self-control that Paul speaks of as a sure sign of God's Spirit at work in us 
It's the denial of our lesser angels. It's a turning from our baser instincts. It's the training of our hearts and minds away from ourselves for the sake of others and the sake of the world. Live by the Spirit, says Paul. Don't gratify your petty desires. Live by the Spirit, says Paul, and be guided to life that bears fruit in the world. Friends, Paul wrote these words over 2,000 years ago to a group of contentious churches, and they speak of a mystery, the mystery of how God works in us and in our world, the mystery of the powerful transforming spirit of God that is active in and among and around us. And let me remind you on this hot summer morning that that is still the case. God's Spirit is still active, still transforming, still powerful. I know a family, a tight-knit extended family, that like so many was broken apart by a nasty divorce. There was enough bitterness and betrayal and anger and blame and self-loathing to not only keep the couple and their one child completely cut off from one another for decades, but also to keep the aunts and the uncles and the cousins and the grandparents completely cut off as well. It was ugly. It was painful. Two decades, two decades of no contact, missing out on each other's lives. I know a church, a robust beautiful community of faith that was broken apart by the moral failings of its senior pastor. And in the aftermath of revelations and resignations, there was enough bitterness and betrayal, anger and blame to shut that place down. It was ugly. It was painful. Friends, the work of the flesh they're obvious, right? Sexual immorality, impurity, enmity, strife, anger, dissensions, factions, biting and devouring one another, coming at one another with a stick, as Pastor Emily said last week. But, but that is not the way of the Spirit. That broken family, so cut off from one another and in so much pain, after two decades, one of the now-grown cousins reached out to his cousin and childhood friend and simply said, do you remember me? Do you remember me? And walls began to tumble down. Meetings and conversations began to happen. Forgiveness and misunderstandings were taken care of. And and grace flowed into this messy family. And today, well, let's just say that uh, family weddings and graduations and birthdays and holidays, well, they are very full, very abundant, and really complicated as that divorced couple and that entire extended family have found ways to gather together and be together and do life together again. That broken church, so confused and so angry and so disappointed, the night of the announcement, one church member picked up the phone and started calling fellow church members. She decided to start a 
calling campaign, and without telling the staff or the session of the church, she planned a prayer meeting at the church the same night that that group of church leaders was going to have to gather for the first time in an emergency meeting to figure out what the heck to do. And that night when those leaders gathered in that session room, there was a knock on the door and 128 church members walked in. They surrounded the session table. They didn't come with recrimination. They didn't come with demands. They simply came to pray for their leaders. And by the end of that prayer, the church's new life had begun. Now notice that in both of these situations, it just took one person. One person turning from their baser instincts and turning towards love. One person making just a little space for the Spirit. One person doing their best to be guided by the Spirit. And transformation and healing came to many. When my boys were little, I was a Cub Scout den leader. We have any ex-Cub Scout den leaders here this morning? It is a thankless job, a good job, fun job, right? I had eight really rambunctious little boys in my den. They were full of energy. They were into everything. And I had to plan my meetings very carefully with plenty of activities, lots of supervision. I had this one precious little guy who loved to wrestle. He loved it. I'd turn my back for a minute, and there he'd go, wrestling all over the place. Now, this little boy was kind. He was thoughtful. He wasn't a bully. And when I would ask him to stop, he would always stop. But every meeting, when I turned my back, there he was, wrestling on the floor. Finally, I asked him, I said, why? Why is it that you continue to wrestle at my den meetings? Why? What's going on? And I'll never forget him looking at me with those beautiful, sincere blue eyes and kind of a cherubic smile, and he said, Miss Stacy, I just can't help it. I just can't help it. Does that sound familiar? I just can't help it. I can't forgive. I can't forget. I can't stop this behavior. I can't stop this thinking. I can't stop this way of treating myself or treating others. I can't help it. This is how God made me. This is who I am. I can't help it. No need to open my heart or my mind to a new way of doing things or thinking about things. It won't work. I can't help it. Have you heard such words from someone you love? Have you heard those words coming from your own heart? Friends, the Apostle Paul, he understood this. According to Scripture, he experienced failure to be guided by the Spirit in his own life. He experienced the struggle with the baser, lesser instincts, which he called sin. He writes about it in Romans 7 and 8. And I want to read to you a paraphrase of his words a paraphrase by Eugene Peterson. Listen to what Paul says about this struggle. He says, it happens so regularly that it's predictable. The moment I decide to do good, sin is there to trip me up. I truly delight in God's commands, but it's pretty obvious that not all of me joins in this delight. Parts of me covertly rebel, and just when I least expect it, they take charge. 
I've tried everything and nothing helps. I'm at the end of my rope. Is there no one who can do anything for me? Isn't that the real question? The answer, thank God, is that Jesus Christ can and does. He acted to set things right in this life of contradictions where I want to serve God with all my heart and mind, but I'm pulled by the influence of sin to do something totally different. With the arrival of Jesus the Messiah, the fateful dilemma is resolved. Those who enter into Christ being here for us no longer have to live under a continuous low-lying black cloud. A new power is in operation. Let me repeat that. A new power is in operation. The spirit of life in Christ, like a strong wind, has magnificently cleared the air, freeing you from a faded lifetime of brutal tyranny at the hands of sin and death. I can't help it, says Paul. I'm human. I will sin. I'll be tempted to give in to my lower instincts. I can't help it, not if I'm left to my own devices. But thanks be to God, God didn't leave me there. And friends, thanks be to God, we are not alone either. The spirit of life in Christ, like a strong wind, continues to clear the air, continues to free us. And in God's spirit, a new power is in operation. The power for forgiveness when we don't think it's possible. The power to overcome anger, bitterness, and strife even when we don't want to. The power for building bridges and opening hearts when it seems too difficult. The power for you, the power for me, the power for this desperate, hurting world. We just need to make a little space. A little space for the Spirit to move. A little space is all it takes for the Spirit to begin its work. The Spirit's work of change that brings about love and joy, peace and patience, kindness and generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Not just to make our lives sweet, but to sweeten the world around us. Friends, this is our calling. This is the power available to us. Thanks be to God, whose spirit can and does work miracles every day.